Hello, and welcome to Story and Fiction, a podcast that brings you award-winning stories of William H. Coles, the creator of the website for writers, storyandliteraryfiction.com. Today, we have the acclaimed novel, Guardian of Deceit, a character-based story with dramatic plot, great characters, and intriguing settings, and hundreds of top reviews. This is the second of three episodes, so let's get started. Part 2 Chapter 24 As Darwin's private tutors came more frequently to prepare him for the standardized region exams, a new English tutor had replaced the first tutor who had taken a job as a college professor. This tutor had a degree, but she didn't have classroom teaching credentials. She was just out of college, no more than 23 years old. She was five feet six, with thin wire-rimmed glasses that gave her an intellectual air, and full-bodied black hair that cascaded to her shoulders and framed her oval face. Her dark brown eyes tended to look away often, as if she were intent on hiding what emotions they might reveal. She wore a dark maroon skirt and a white blouse with a collar open at the neck, where a plain mount almond-sized garnet on a gold chain lay on her white skin. She had the body of an athlete and moved with a secure grace. Darwin had never seen a combination of efficiency and controlled natural beauty like this before. He was intrigued by her uniqueness. I'm Miss Pearlstein, she said. Darwin evaluated her and said nothing. Where do you work? she asked and quickly added, with your other tutors. Darwin led her to a table in the recreation room in the basement. She took a seat, and he sat across from her. She laid out papers from her tote bag. Her eyes continued to fascinate, bright with intelligence, inquisitive, and emotive in a way that captured his thinking to imagining being with her when she wasn't a teacher. She started the lesson. Which is correct? Between her and me? Between she and I? Between her and me, he said. That is correct. Between is a preposition that demands the objective case. She spoke crisply, her fingers drumming impatiently on the table, her gaze unyielding like a 19th-century schoolmarm. He was fascinated. She was sitting straight on a straight-back chair, as if her spine was a wooden yardstick. Her thoroughly professional demeanor seemed a mask to deny her youth. He wondered who she was without her mask. He wanted to know her. She didn't wear rings, and she had small diamond stud earrings that sparkled in the light from the recessed ceiling spotlights that illuminated the room. Speak up, she said. I'm harmless. Yes, he said. I know the objective case. Let's move on. I will give choices. We or us went skating. We? A prize went to she or her. Her? What was me, or what was I? He paused. What was me is common and accepted usage. What was I is grammatically more correct historically. She was seriously attentive now. I would have answered what was me at your age, but without a clue as to why. He had no doubt she was less than five years older than he. Her intense teaching continued without distraction. Most of what she taught he knew and so he rarely required total concentration. He watched her with renewed, intense interest. 
Her pale, thin lips moved with her speech, and her sharp, enigmatic eyes now engaged him often, sometimes holding his gaze an instant longer than he expected. At times, she leafed through a folder of papers as she talked, but no longer commenting on his correct answers to her more difficult questions. You know objective and subjective case well enough. I won't spend time on it. She pulled out a page. Tell me what an apposition is, she asked not unkindly. Two grammatically parallel words or phrases with the same referent. An example? The first president, George Washington, or my friend, Bob. She looked at him for a few seconds with a quizzical smile on her face. Review won't take long. We'll finish up. Will you be coming back? he asked. She ignored his question and proceeded to parts of speech and then hyphenation. At the end, she said, I want you to read this book that we'll discuss in our third or fourth lesson. It's part of learning classical literature. You're at that level, and you'll need the knowledge. The book was Wuthering Heights. Chapter 25 Helen Malvern's heart tripped up a notch when she saw Andrew Townsend in her senior year. He was introduced with other new students by the principal in assembly. He was a senior. He'd come to Exeter from Sandhurst. His father was a diplomat, and the family moved every few years as his assignments varied. Isn't Andrew Devine? Coral asked Helen a few days later. He's a little too much for me, Helen said apprehensive at Coral's interest. What's too much? That accent, those bow ties, those monogrammed initials on his shirt pocket. He was born in England. He told me his father knew the Queen. Met the Queen, maybe. I don't know. You've talked to him? Helen asked. In the cafeteria, I sat next to him. He acts gay to me. Coral laughed. He's not gay, believe me. She wanted to ask Coral if she'd bedded him yet. She'd tried, Helen was sure. It was Coral's best skill, this giving herself to men as rapidly after first contact as possible. Helen didn't understand and pretended not to care. Basically, she was afraid of sex, of doing it, the physical act, that it might hurt, that she'd become a slut, that she couldn't climax, that people wouldn't respect her. And Coral's sexually easy, yearned-for exploits angered and puzzled her with hints of awe and jealousy. She hoped Andrew Townsend would not succumb to her sister, so obvious in her lust. Surely he had better taste than that. But most of the boys in schools would screw any girl willing without caring for her, without a thought about a girl's emotions or reputation. Helen hadn't let a boy have her. Touching, rubbing, passive-assisting a few climaxes, her hand in their clothes under a loosened belt. She'd permitted herself to be involved with that, without excitement, really, instead with a slightly oppressive distaste tinged with apprehension of doing wrong that lingered. And at present, she allowed only advances in a confined space in the front seat of a car, where potential of completing the things she feared were limited. But she daydreamed about Andrew and her in public together, where her adoration could shine, in a somewhat vague, imageless way, and she believed she could overcome her hesitancy at the real thing with Andrew. Maybe even look forward to having him be the first, letting him know how much she cared by giving herself to him, 
He seemed serious and so much more mature than the other boys at school. Surely he'd appreciate a girl like her, trim, good-looking, and still with a pristine pride in saving her amorous virtuosity for the right person. But how would she get him interested in her? The competition was even worse than she could imagine. Her breasts were not even average in size, and boys loved big breasts. She prayed to God Andrew was different than most boys, appreciated form and not volume. If she could just permanently bond to him before casually going all the way, who knew what the future might bring? She imagined being next to him at church. She surmised he harbored God-fearing roots from his confident demeanor. She never imagined a life together lived in passionate moments. Instead, she saw him accepting awards for academic and business achievements with her by his side. She could see them vacationing in the Greek Isles, exploring Minoan culture on Crete, with a picnic lunch of cheese, wine, and bread. Never once did she envision a family, nor did she see toddlers or infants in her dreams of their travels or adventures. Helen alerted her parents to the political prominence of Andrew and his family in the neighborhood, and her mother soon invited Andrew and his parents and his sister to dinner with all the Malvern family at a reserved private dining room at the club. The seating was at a rectangular table. Andrew was bookend between Coral and her mother, but Helen maneuvered to sit directly across from Andrew and was able to easily converse. She explored his hopes and dreams as Coral and mother listened. He wanted to follow in his father's wake, expand in diplomacy, maybe enter politics at some point after a law degree. She was enthralled. Diplomacy especially thrilled her. Now she liked the idea of multilingual children chatting at the dinner table, interesting multi-level homes with angular roofs and toilets with hidden handles and bizarre flushes. And while she was exploring Andrew's future hopes, she could see herself supporting his career, wearing designer dresses that glowed in the spotlights, interviewing to promote public illumination of his private, tender-caring personal side. Her heart quickened at the thought. After dinner... As she said goodbye, she gave him, raised on tiptoe, a cheek kiss. But he did not call her over the next few weeks. She fought to contain her disappointment. She believed he had been attracted to her. From rumor calling, she was almost sure he was not dating anyone seriously. So she asked him to a holiday ball at the club. He accepted graciously, as if he'd been waiting for her call. As an escort, he was charming and she glowed as she slow-danced in his arms. As the evening progressed, his hold on her grew firmer on the dance floor, and she thrilled to the closeness of his lips to her ear as he talked about tunes he liked, orchestras he preferred, the beauty of the decorations, and other women's dresses that he repeatedly stated as inferior to her superior Claude Patois original. He then began calling her for dates, at first on the weekends, then on weeknights, Helen was in love. He soon became surprisingly affectionate, wanting to consummate their relation on the third date, but she withheld. She had lost her rationalization about needing to reject intercourse for moral or social reasons, but she still could not lose the fear of what male penetration could do to her. She believed she was small. Her doctor said on a routine exam she had a child's pelvis, and worried about delivering a fetus through such an opening, that it would hurt. Secretly, she couldn't bring herself to want to please a man in the ways Coral seemed to have mastered, 
to that point where boys followed Coral around like moths to flames for degrading immoral acts. She was afraid, too. She'd be altered physically in some way, carry some gruesome genital deformity to taunt her for her depravity, and she also resented the subordinate role women were forced into in the acts of sex as she understood them. But most of all, she didn't like the thought of being a receptacle. She knew she had to do it, and she would. Damn it, she had no other choice. She loved him. Still, the receptacle idea would not leave her. And then she panicked. Delay might lose him. On the way back from a movie, she made her move. I'd like you to make love to me, Andrew. I feel very strongly for you. Without a word, he took her to a motel on the coast road that she had never heard of before. He called as they drove and reserved a room. She undressed in the cramped, sour-smelling bathroom while he lay naked on the bed. She came out and slipped under the covers. He rolled over to join her. He made no move to excite her. He mounted her. She was rigid with anxiety. He spread her legs with his hand. She could feel his solid strength, once and then twice against her leg and abdomen as he positioned. Then, with his hand groping for anatomy, he touched her, explored her with his hand, then he thrust into her. Pain shot through her, a mixture of sharp and deep-seated pain that made her cry out. With her legs thrashing, she thrust away from him, feeling the relief of him being out of her. She was sobbing, struggling to roll to the edge of the bed, trying to get out from under him as he stayed positioned above her, his arms stiffly supporting his torso. He collapsed on the bed and turned over. Ah, oh, Jesus, he said. Then she sat on the edge of the bed, pain still boring in her, and held her head in her hands. She cried. Now she felt a wave of guilt. Without looking at him, she said, Oh, I'm so sorry. What can I do for you? Do you want me to touch you? Can I, can I take you in my mouth? He was silent. She turned to look at him. His eyes were closed. She reached for him. He was soft, and she tried to stroke him. Oh, stop, he said. I can suck you, she said desperately. Don't be ridiculous. No, no, I can. I want to. It would give me pleasure. He sat up and threw his legs over the edge of the bed. Get dressed, he said. I love you, she said. He laughed and began to dress. Tell me you love me, she said. Tell me we can work it out. Ah, oh, Jesus, he said again in frustration. It was my first time. I can do better. He was half-dressed. I'll wait in the car. She sobbed again. It will be all right, won't it? You and me. He didn't answer. He left the room, and she sat on the bed for minutes before painfully washing herself with a cloth wetted in the sink and then dressing near the bed position so she couldn't see herself in the full-length mirror on the bathroom door. When she was finished, she went to the car. He was listening to a blues singer on a sound system, a guitar strumming backup. We'll go get something to eat, he said. I'm so sorry, she gushed again. Ah, oh, forget it. She didn't say she loved him again. She stopped herself, afraid not to hear a response that he loved her, a response that she needed now to hear desperately. They tried again later that night, in the back of the car. He'd bought lubricant, guided her a little. Then she reached to help him find her, 
and this time he used protection, something he assumed she'd taken care of before. He told her angrily that he expected her to prepare in the future. She waited for the sensation she thought she should feel from his movements. She felt his presence, felt, as she feared, a sense of being subordinated, and she waited for some unexpected pleasure, some rush of joy, but none came. His taking her was experienced with objective overlay, and she intellectually analyzed each movement of his body for the emergence of some thrill. Twice she tried to awkwardly create movement with him, but she found no rhythm, and let him crescendo without response from her. Finally, he was finished. Was that okay for you? she asked matter-of-factly. He said nothing as he wiped himself off. It was great for me, she said. She paused. Thank you, she said. She could see his quizzical gaze in the semi-darkness. At least he didn't laugh. But he said nothing, moving to the front seat and waiting for her to right herself. Now it was over. The discomfort she had felt while he was in her had now turned to a dull ache with sharp pain of movement. She did not know if she had failed, and she did not know if Andrew appreciated she had sacrificed to give herself to him. She believed it was the greatest gift of love, and she wondered if it would bond them for life. She did not hear from him for days. Then he called her for a movie, and before the show ended, and without a word, he drove her to the beach and park where the car was hidden from the road. She knew he wanted her in the back seat, and she opened the passenger door and got in the rear. He took her in silence at first, then the grunts of his efforts grated on her ears. He was finished in minutes. She had again waited for the slightest bit of pleasure, but she felt only discomfort and humiliation. And for months they dated, every date ending with sex, usually in the car, but sometimes on the beach, or standing next to a tree in a copse, or against a wall, or between cars in a parking lot. On her birthday, they went to the club for dinner. He talked animatedly about school and the debate team, and he was trying to learn polo, a sport his father encouraged. That night he drove her to a motel where he took her in bed. She was on the pill now. She prayed for pleasure to come to her in the comfort of sheets as he worked himself above her, his eyes closed, his breath tinted with alcohol flooding her face. She'd gotten used to him now, and she was pleased the dread was gone. He rolled off her without speaking and she cleaned herself in the bathroom. He was almost asleep when she came out. She sat on a heating and air conditioning unit until he was ready to dress and go. Coral had said little about Andrew. But after almost six months, when Helen drove Coral back home from school, Coral said, Are you going to marry him? Helen didn't answer immediately. She didn't know. She really didn't know if Andrew loved her in the way she wanted. He said he loved her at times, but it was always perfunctory, unreadable for passion or emotion. I don't know if I'm ready for marriage, Helen said. But you do love him? She did love him, she thought. She still dreamt of their lives together, of their social conquest, of supporting him through careers. She thought he wanted that. He said he did. He liked talking about it. He's the best, Helen said. Coral looked at her with a side glance she couldn't interpret. When Andrew stopped calling her, avoiding her when they met accidentally, a few months later, Helen's heart 
ached with the loss. She thought she still loved him, knew she wanted to fulfill his need for her. But in time, she began to rationalize she could never realize her dreams with him. All well and good, but she couldn't stop fretting when he no longer called her. Then she cried alone at nights. She kept frantically active during the days to not let thinking about his rejection creep into her mind. And she feared she would never find a man with his confidence and resources. She welled up with rare self-pity. She'd never marry. She'd find a career and succeed and never let a man subjugate her emotions again. But her resolve about men in the future was tenuous and left her with an inescapable anxiety. Chapter 26 Weeks later, after many sessions, Pearlstein put her glasses on the table, spread her papers, held her head in her hands, and cried. What's wrong? Darwin asked, checking his impulse to touch her. She dried her eyes with her sleeve. Darwin brought her a box of tissues from the bathroom. Are you up for this today? he asked. My boyfriend dumped me. Darwin waited. He had never had a thought that she had a boyfriend. To him, she was all intellect, her passion packaged and in reserve. Are you sure, he said, like it's definite? He's dating another woman. Or maybe things can be worked out. For months, he never told me. He's not for you, then. Let him go. She's not pretty. I found out her address. I went to see her. She's got a big nose, and her skin is dry. She was tense with jealousy. He's not worth your time. I'm not that bad-looking, am I? He said nothing. He thought her stress made her strikingly beautiful in her own way, revealing the intenseness of her emotions. Without her glasses, her myopic gaze was unfocused, hesitant, invulnerable, and alarmingly beguiling. I mean, I know I'm not what men like to dream about. She was looking to the side, talking without looking at him. She seemed afraid of what she might see in his face. Some glimmer of dislike, maybe. You're very attractive, he said. You're being sarcastic. You don't mean it at all. His discomfort grew. She'd lost all sense of their student-teacher relationship. It excited him and scared him at the same time. Her eyes were moist. She was fighting back tears. She began searching around on the table for her glasses. Darwin reached to help. The glasses were under loose papers, and he handed them to her. She extended both hands hesitantly to find them. She positioned her glasses on her face. She took his hand that she held with both of hers for a few seconds longer than necessary. Thanks. I'm such an idiot, she said. He had no response. She was straightening the contents of her briefcase, her eyes diverted, preparing to leave. That's all? Darwin asked. She had more than 45 minutes left in the session. I won't charge you, she said. I'm too upset. He paused, thinking he might say something. A goodbye, or it will work out. But he wasn't sure what would be right, and he could now feel her embarrassment at her confession or breaking the professional barrier that she had kept so well between them. She left quickly, the door at the top of the stairs closing softly, 
her footsteps fading as she crossed the hardwood floors to the front door. He sat motionless for minutes before he went to his room. He couldn't stop thinking about Pearlstein. He visualized the magnetism of her expressive dark eyes. He recalled her passionate descriptions of love in Wuthering Heights, the excitement of her voice, the glitter in her thinking, and he dreamed about her and woke aroused in the darkness of his room, the air moist from his rapid, quick breathing. The next session, Pearlstein arrived in a red dress with a pearl necklace and a gold charm bracelet. She wore black medium heels and sheer stockings. She looked more feminine than he had ever seen. She insisted they conduct their studies in the dining room, not the rec room, well within the hearing range of either the kitchen staff or grandma. The session was intense. He knew most of the answers to her questions and did not hold back. He wanted her to feel good about her sessions, feel good about him. She'd lost any trace of condescension now, and she was still very good at the self-assurance her profession demanded. He forced himself to keep his gaze off the perfect symmetry of her face, the vibrant movement of her delicate lips. He now knew the yearning of love. Each of the following sessions she remained aloof and excessively professional, and each night he analyzed her aloofness, trying to detect some faint hint of interest in him, but never convincing himself it was there. He wanted to tell her of his unique passion, but he could not find words that he could depend on, and he feared humiliation if her surprised laugh emerged in the way that he imagined. Chapter 27 Weeks later, on a Thursday, after intense late afternoon studies in math with Mr. Teasdale, and history with Mrs. Knightley. Miss Pearlstein came at seven. She started a session that continued almost till ten, in the basement. He would relive the moments, over and over in his mind forever, guilty and fascinated at their effect on him. They take a break. He brings her soda from the rec room kitchen and sits on a sofa. She turns out the overhead light and comes and sits beside him, keeping a distance. She is wearing a skirt and blouse. He pretends to relax, his head back, feigning exhaustion. But he is rigid with anticipation. She neither moves nor speaks. He is afraid to open his eyes. He is afraid he will see her disdain. Ridiculous, really. But that is how he feels, flushed with intense, unreasonable emotions. He hears her adjusting her clothes, unbuttoning her blouse, lifting her skirt and taking off her panties. She directs him to lie face up on the sofa. She gently lowers herself onto him full length. He keeps his eyes closed, his heart now pumping strong and steady. He thinks only briefly about resisting. His growing attraction to her over their sessions together has now exploded, and he cannot think of resisting, although for a second he wonders if he should. His eyes are tightly shut in anticipation. He feels her closeness to him, unzipping his jeans to free him. She gently moves him back and guides his legs up on the sofa. She straddles him. Her arms touch the sides of his head. His heart is racing hot, his groin pulsing. His lips taste the strange earthiness of her nipple flesh, and with slow excitement, the tip of his tongue explores the shape that pieces it together, the shape in his mind. His eyes still shut, unwilling to open. 
She kisses him all over, then puts her left hand on his right shoulder for support and uses the other hand to guide him. He still does not look, and he has lost all resistance, which now seems never to have existed. Instead, he now longs for what must come. She moves on him slowly at first, then faster. She is making little gasping noises. Her hand leaves his shoulder, and he knows she has taken off her glasses and dropped them on the floor. Her knee slips off the sofa, and he slips out, and she helps him reposition, and she takes him back in, to the relief of his suddenly great need for her. She completes herself, and then him, and falls on him, while rolling to one side and holding him, and he finds he is holding her tightly, so that the skin he feels amidst her tangled clothes will never separate from the skin he's exposed by pulling up his shirt, and she cries softly, and his heart refuses to slow for many minutes and sweat trickles from the hollow at the base of his spine. Now he begins to worry that this might never happen again, that she will revert to the old Pearlstein that he never could have imagined having such yearning for. Then, without speaking, she hurriedly dresses and tries to straighten her wrinkled clothes and the weak light filtering down from the crack under the door at the top of the stairs. She packs up her materials, and without touching him or saying anything, she creeps up the stairs stopping to peek, to see if anyone might be between her and the front door. In a few seconds, the front door closes. Chapter 28 The next morning, Pearlstein returned for what would be their last session of the quarter before exams. She was at the mansion early by fifteen minutes. She was in running shoes, jeans, and a t-shirt. Her hair sprung out from her head uncombed. Her eyes were bleary. He had rehearsed what she might say and how he would respond. She would shrink with shame and say with contrition, Look, I'm so sorry about last night. I mean, I was out of control. We'll just have to forget it. It never happened. But I liked it, he would say. She would stare at him. You mean it? You really liked it? Yeah, it was like really great. I can't forget it. Over and over. You're too young, she would say with hesitation. What's age got to do with it, he would say. She'd think for a second. Uh, it could be a scandal. But he would be firm. No one will ever know, I guarantee it. Her face would lose its tenseness. We'll see, she would say, and then at the end of the session, she would slip him a piece of notebook paper with where he might see her again. Let's get started, she said, but still unable to look at him directly. I don't need any more instruction. I'll pass the exams, he said. You're not going to just pass. You're going to have honors. He started for the stairs to the basement. We'll work up here today in the dining room, she said without moving. What? That's exactly where everyone would hear. The kitchen staff, Granny if she was awake, and she would be. Colette, the housekeeper, Mrs. Thomas. He had expected to work downstairs, where he could deal with her embarrassment and slip the bolt on the door for privacy. She pulled out a chair and sat down. Embarrassment was what it was. He'd prepared for the contingency. She'd enjoyed it too much, and that he was younger had been a thought that came to her long after. And she was afraid someone would find out, denounce her, ruin her career as a private teacher. He would bring it up. I thought about last night, he would start. She would quickly say, don't talk about it, now or ever. No, no, I want to talk about it, about you. That would be a surprise for her. 
He wanted to talk about her. Really? Of course. He would want to give the impression of some experience at this point. You were really wonderful, you know. She would smile. Were you surprised? He'd be honest. I never thought it would be like that. You're not worried about babies, are you? She would say. He would see the concern for him in her eyes. He would say, oh no, although the thought had never left him. It's not the time, she'd say with an intimate look he hadn't seen before. But he had no chance to start the conversation. She took out papers and began with questions. Uh, do you speak to or with someone, she asked. Her voice was raspy. She would not look at him, although he watched her face for some sign that she even remembered last night. She seemed totally absorbed in this last lesson. After thirty minutes of quizzing, he finally said, Mr. Teasdale's coming at eleven. I am well aware of when Mr. Teasdale will arrive, she said, unable to hide her irritation. She started her questions again. He had hoped she would give some sign of wanting to be alone with him, even if only to let him know how she felt. What she expected. I can assure you I will be finished when you see Mr. Teasdale. And she was. At the sound of the doorbell, she was packed and ready to go. Good luck on your test tomorrow, she said. He stayed seated. You don't need luck, she finally glanced at him with unrevealing eyes. You knew almost everything I taught you. She turned to head for the door, passing Mr. Teasdale without a greeting. Chapter 29 Darwin aced the regent's exams with honors. He was scheduled for a preliminary SAT. His tutoring was to start again in four weeks. He had not heard from Pearlstein. Of course, she would not want to return until the next session started, but he had expected something from her, some excuse to make contact. He continued to relive his time with her, feeling in his mind her movements, how soft her skin was. He remembered odd details, her eyes without glasses, a drop of sweat falling from her face to touch his cheek, the heat of her skin on his chest. He went to Mrs. Thomas, who coordinated the payments of the tutors. He asked about Pearlstein. She's not coming back. She sent a note, Mrs. Thomas said. Why? She didn't say. He asked her about the other tutors but had trouble appearing interested, his mind racing with what life without Pearlstein would be. Do you have her address, he asked. Mrs. Thomas turned to a metal file cabinet. What are you wanting with her address? He searched for a reason. I'd like to write her a thank you note. Mrs. Thomas laughed. More likely a valentine. What did she know? I placed very high in English, he said with a shameful smile, conceding she probably knew everything. Mrs. Thomas stopped smiling. Whatever. She handed him the address and a phone number. He debated calling Pearlstein, but how could he tell her true emotions over the phone, no matter what she said? Pearlstein lived in a third-floor apartment, 12C M. Pearlstein on the mailbox, with a buzzer above so the owner could release the door lock. She wouldn't open it, he was sure. That was risky. He waited until someone might come out and he could slip in and catch the door before it locked. A few minutes later, a woman came out. He held the door for her and slipped in. Apartment 12C was at the end of a long hall with many doors and dimly lit by two bare light bulbs. He knocked, 
chains were undone. A bolt slid back. The door opened six inches, another chain lock still in place. He looked down on her. Her glasses were on crooked as if she'd put them on hurriedly and failed to get the temple settled on her ear. It's me, he said. He slipped his foot in the door. She tried to close it. Talk to me. She disappeared from the opening, but was still behind the door. The pressure against his foot lightened. Let me in, he said. She opened the door. He stepped in. I've wanted to see you. She clenched her jaw and adjusted her glasses. She ran her fingers through her hair. She had on shorts and a T-shirt with no bra and fuzzy slippers with a rabbit face on each one, a red nose and droopy ears and button eyes for children. I wasn't expecting company, she explained as he stared. I called, he said defensively. What do you want, she said sharply. I did great on my exam, he said. She reached for the doorknob. She was trembling. He touched her arm. Could we talk? She cried. She ran into a small living room. He followed. She curled up onto a two-seater sofa, still sobbing, her face in her hands. He waited. His heart ached. She looked frail and vulnerable. She took off her glasses and wiped her eyes with her T-shirt sleeve. After a couple of minutes, she stopped trembling. He went to the small kitchenette and filled a glass with water from the tap. She shook her head no, and he set it on the floor. He sat on a chair. She had her hands clasped as if in prayer, and she'd rested the side of her face on them, her eyes closed. Her T-shirt was wadded, and he looked at her small inverted navel on a flat stomach. Finally, she sat up, straightening her hair with her fingers and putting on her glasses. She was drained of emotion. There's nothing to say, she said. I think about you, he said. I wanted to see you, and when I heard you quit tutoring, I just quit you. He frowned. Why? Why did you do that? She leaned back on the couch, her feet dangling, her head back, staring at the ceiling. I've never done that before, she said. Do you believe that? He looked away. With anyone, not even my boyfriend. It was my first time, my God, with a 17-year-old boy. Eighteen now, he tried a weak smile. She sobbed. I'm five years older than you are. I'm like your sister. He didn't move. It's crazy, she said, leaning forward with her hands on the edge of the sofa, looking at him. I can't forget one second of the whole evening. How I needed so much to be wanted. How much I wanted a man to want me. How every motion scared me and thrilled me so my heart was racing. She shut her eyes as if to try to keep herself immune from the world. It was a sick moment, she continued, with a boy, a student. I've been praying for forgiveness. I talked to the rabbi last Saturday, she sobbed. I've sinned. She was consumed by the wrongness of it all. She seemed void of any need for him now, as if she were doing penance. Her stress saddened him. She didn't deserve to self-flagellate. He was feeling her want for him now. And with the pain of her voice and the sorrow of her tears, his want for her swelled. He knew he loved her. She must have sensed his aching heart. It's not fair to you, she said. You don't deserve this. He leaned forward, uncrossed his legs, and crawled closer to her. She jumped up, pulling down her T-shirt to cover her belly skin. She backed away. Don't come near me. 
She was acting as if she suffered a bout of insanity that had nothing to do with him personally. Her guilt must have erased any attraction for him. He held the doorknob and paused. He had wished for so much more. He opened the door. Darwin, she said urgently. She came to him and on tiptoes reached up with both hands to pull his head toward her and tilting her head slightly, without any of her body touching him, she kissed him. His heart raced. He felt her tongue touch his lips. He reached out to encircle her, draw her closer, but she broke away, turning from him. Now anger had possessed her. In the name of God, she said, go away. She ran through the living room into the back room out of sight. He followed her to the room, a bedroom with a single bed and a dresser. The closet door was open. She was cowering in a corner, holding a tennis racket in front of her, the broken strings half hiding her face, her hands gripping the handle, one on top of the other, the knuckles white from pressure. He started to step into the room. She screamed, Don't touch me! He waited, watching as her breathing finally slowed and she relaxed. I do love you, Darwin, she said, her voice breaking. It wasn't just sex. It wasn't just that. You're so much older than your age. He didn't move. But I was wrong. She rolled over to look at him for the first time. Please go. I can't bear it any longer. A painful, wordless moan formed in her throat behind closed lips. He felt it more than heard it. He let himself out. In the hall, he slumped in a squatting position against the wall, not knowing what to do. He imagined her on the other side of the door, her back against the panel, as if blockading the door so it would never reopen. He knocked softly. Go away, she said faintly. He left the building for the painful trip back through a bleak, unsympathetic world to the mansion. For the next two weeks he called her many times, but she never answered. He decided to see her again, but the name card in the mailbox was gone. No one answered the buzzer. He pushed the buzzer on the next box. A woman's voice answered. I'm looking for Melanie Pearlstein. <coughs> she's, she's gone. Uh, <coughs> moved out last week. The voice crackled over the intercom. Do you know where? I, I d don't have a clue. <coughs> Southern girl. He pushed all the other buttons. Four answered. Two cut him off. One didn't know Pearlstein. One knew she'd moved out to uh, Vermont or New Hampshire or maybe Maine. No one knew how to contact her. He tried for more than a week to find her through the Internet. But there was no trace. And slowly, as the weeks progressed, he accepted the finality of her disappearance. Chapter 30 during Darwin's summer break, Dr. Malvin took the family on a three-week vacation out of the country. It was a yearly family tradition, and this year he invited Darwin. Dr. Malvin wanted to introduce him to French professional colleagues. He still believed he could convince Darwin to do orthopedics. He now openly admitted he wanted Darwin to take over his practice. Darwin, with time, had felt more and more a part of the family, except for certain times with Coral and Helen, who he thought had some resentment for their father's support of him, never expressed, but still very real. This year the family rented a country house southeast of Paris. 
Dr. Malvern was visiting a hospital in Lyon for two days with a French colleague he had trained, and Mrs. Malvern was planning shopping in the local village to then prepare, in the well-equipped kitchen of the rented chateau, an announced meal of duck confit, potatoes lyonnaise, fresh mange too, and a dessert of gâteau à l'orange with creme fraîche when the good doctor got home. She'd spent a weekend at Le Cordon Bleu. Helen had invited Darwin to tour Paris, and they took the train to the city for the day. At Dr. Malvern's recommendation, they planned to visit the Musée d'Orsay, then lunch at the Hotel Crillon, and then to take in the Musée Picasso before returning by train. Dr. Malvern had quietly, and away from the others, handed Darwin more than enough money to pay for the day. For almost a year, Helen had dated Leonard Stapleton, the son of the mayor of Providence, Rhode Island. The mayor had a home in the Hamptons, and Helen had been able to see Leonard regularly. She kept the chaste until the end, but savored parading the social scene where she proudly hung on his arm. He had political ambitions and was preparing to run for Congress from his home district. She had anticipated engagement, but he suddenly stopped seeing her, preferring a New York fashion model, brain-dead but long and lean with soulful eyes and puffy enhanced lips. Well, screw him. Better now than later, she told herself over and over. But it hurt to think about it. And Coral's open laughter at her folly didn't help to put it all behind her. Helen saw a trip to France as a healing time for her Leonard-damaged heart. The day had gone well. Darwin had listened intently to Helen's discussions of her favorite paintings. He had added technical details on works of the 18th and 19th centuries, all remembered from his mother's extensive education in the visual arts that she had meticulously taught him. They finished lunch and relaxed, seated on a bench at the Place de Concorde after lunch before taking a taxi to the Musée Picasso. I worry about Coral spending last night with her French teacher, Helen said. She wanted to be sure Darwin never forgot Coral's ceaseless promiscuity, even on vacation. Sure, his and any man worthy of Helen's interest would savor Helen's purity compared to Coral's debauchery. Darwin watched the traffic accelerate around the fountain without looking at her. I don't know why it bothers me, she continued. Your parents don't seem to mind. They accepted Coral's appetites long ago. I think your mother secretly encourages it, Darwin said. How obtuse that was. She had expected condemnation of Coral's behavior. Coral's wild side, she said. A white cloud covered the sun, and the pavement grayed, and a mother pushing a baby carriage removed an opaque, improvised layer of plastic wrap that shielded her infant to give it air without direct exposure to the sun. The baby looked around, with puzzled amazement fixating briefly on Darwin before passing by. It's none of my business. I just think she's ruining her life, Helen continued. Darwin leaned back against the bench, his arms outstretched. After many seconds, he said, She seems to be doing what she wants. What's the harm? She'll never find true love with one-night stands at home or a few weeks of ceaseless passion with a stranger in an exotic place. I don't know, Darwin said. Maybe she'll find someone, settle down. It happens all the time. Helen sat stiffly with her hands in her lap, feeling transported from the formality of a 19th century portrait. You think I'm jealous, she said. 
A lot of people seem to admire the life Cora has put together. Do you admire her lifestyle? Ellen asked. It's not for me, but there's no need to be judgmental. Everyone walks their own path. Even with the noise of the traffic, the sounds seemed to deepen. Finally, Helen spoke. There's more to life than partying. I just have to believe that. Darwin stared at a mother with her child walking by hand in hand. Don't you agree? Helen said curtly. He paused. His intensity about the topic of a quarrel was far below what Helen desired. Who knows what's good or bad? It's all relative, especially today. Was he implying she was old-fashioned? She thought she had discovered a devious streak in him. I want more for my sister. Does that sound... A tour guide of Japanese tourists stopped in a clump when the tour guide raised a red and yellow triangular flag on a stick. Insincere, Helen continued. She's not a happy person. I hear her sobbing in the night sometimes. What do you think she wants, Darwin said. Helen remained rigid, as if testifying as a court witness. Darwin stretched his legs. I think she doesn't feel loved, she said. Even with all her trysts, she never feels that someone cares. Her family loves her. You love her, Darwin said. It's not enough. I worry about her. We're so close in many ways, distant in others, but I just don't know what makes her so sad. She's lovable. She just hasn't found the right person, Darwin said. How can I know? I think she might not be able to love another in the way she yearns to be loved. She thought for a moment. What about your friend Sweeney Pale? She doesn't seem to get it right. What is it about her? You know, I've stopped thinking about Coral's life long ago, Darwin said. I never liked what she did to Sweeney in the interview. That wasn't fair, and it was all about Coral's success and fame, not about providing interesting and truthful information to readers about Sweeney. And no matter what she said happened, she was involved. But Sweeney Pale is all about success and fame. Darwin took his arms down from the back of the bench. Sweeney never hurt anyone for her fame. She stands up and sings and lets people judge her. She's not devious. You like her, don't you? I'm not ashamed of liking Sweeney Pale, Helen. But more than a fan? He frowned. She sensed his irritation and didn't want to lose the openness of their conversation. I didn't mean to pry, she said. He didn't speak. I just want to understand people, she said. Sweeney cares for you. It's obvious. Not in the way you mean. She's vulnerable. Fame and wealth have never protected her from loving others too much. How do you figure that? She loves Luther, but he's never been capable of caring for her or anyone. She's a victim of her own bottomless love. He hurts her with every word, every gesture. She's got free will. Why not move on? She thinks it will get better, that he will someday see her worth, love her. And now she blames herself for him not loving her. Something she's done or hasn't done makes him the way he is, as if it were her fault. I hurt for her. She doesn't deserve her misery. Helen was lost in thoughts for a while. I don't think I know what love is, don't. You still love the mayor's son, don't you? 
A dollop of anguish seized her at the mention of Leonard. She paused. I don't think so. I haven't seen him in months. But how does anyone know, love? It's as if only time will tell. He looked away from her gaze. We all know about your tutor girlfriend, she said. And you loved her? He withdrew for only a second. I thought I did, he said. But after she disappeared, I was hurt. And I'm not sure now. I mean, you shouldn't have to try to love the memory of someone. If you don't know it was real love, it probably wasn't. Love is more than just being attracted or liking to be around someone. Maybe it's caring to the point where you selflessly want to make another person's life your own. I never had that chance with Pearlstein. You've never been in love then, she asked. Really in love? Not in the way your father seems to care for your mother. But that's different. Why? They're old, years of being together, and I'm not sure they have the perfect love, she said. Pearlstein taught me the greatest loves of all seem to live in fiction, he said. Pearlstein was obsessed with love stories. She loved literature, not romance, not lust, and conquering and submission. But the mutual longing of two individuals for each other that is or is not satisfied. She always liked the 19th century tales, Jane Eyre, Pride and Prejudice, Wuthering Heights. She loved social inequities. The wings of the dove fascinated her in a different way. Those were times where loves attached slowly, matured like aged wines, and the need for lust, although always present, was always restrained. Something about sharing and caring together through the inexplicable existence of our time on earth. It seems ironic that Pearlstein and I never had the chance to capture that kind of love. Helen turned to face him. That kind of love doesn't come to many, it seems, that knowing and doing and forgiving that brings some relief from tension of being alone in the universe. And each human seems to have a different capacity to love, he said, and never exactly the same understanding of what it all means. You must read a lot, Helen said. Not as often with school, but it's where the most interesting ideas are found. He leaned forward with his elbows on his knees, staring out without focus. His body tensed. She wondered what exactly in him had allowed divulging his thoughts to her. You're strange, Darwin. That's not a compliment, is it? You just don't think like other men. Like a woman? I guess not like anyone I know. Helen relaxed and put her hand on his arm. Do you think this is the right time for the Picasso Museum? She smiled. We could shop the Champs-Élysées until train time. Did he have a spark of interest for her? He wasn't really so bad, really. He stood and smiled at her. He liked being with her, she was sure, alone in the crowds of Paris without the distraction of gallery viewing. You're right. I'm not in the mood for Picasso, he said. She returned a smile, warm and conspiratorial. She knew she wanted more from Darwin. He had accessed his inheritance since she first met him. He was surprisingly reachable, being from the Sahara that was Pittsburgh. She suddenly determined she would try to capture him when the time was right. Her father would be ecstatic. She would appear accomplished, intelligent, a classic American beauty. Well, 
with a slight figure and a somewhat angular face, but overall with symmetry and perfection, and she was superior in her social heritage, something few could bridge. And she'd take an intense interest in his every thought, his every frustration, his every pain. And that is what would captivate him. She'd begin now, before they left for the States. It would take time. And it was perfect to have Korloff screwing some frog, removed as a distraction from her plan, which Coral would, of course, immediately discern and derail if she could. Chapter 31 Darwin was working in Dr. Malvern's office on a Saturday for experience in orthopedics and to strengthen his application to medical school. The doctor had opened Saturday hours a couple of years ago for those patients who wanted to see him and found appointments during the week impossible. His colleagues also worked Saturdays when they could, and the practice had grown with a 10% increase in gross billings attributed to the scheduling change alone. Darwin was scribing for Dr. Malvern and sharing in initial workups with new patients with the techs. An emergency VIP outpatient was shunted to Dr. Malvern as the senior and prestigious partner in his practice. Hammond Clarkson, a 65-year-old wealthy banker vacationing from the city, was playing tennis and felt excruciating pain in his left knee. He couldn't walk or even stand. His tennis partners drove him to the office of Dr. Malvern, the best-known orthopedist for sports injury outside the city. After imaging, a history, vital signs, and a diagnostic exam by a tech were completed, Dr. Malvern stepped into the exam room. Clarkson's wife was brought in from the waiting room. The chief nurse stood by. Darwin, as the scribe Dr. Malvern preferred, was ready to take notes. Hammond, Dr. Malvern said, what a sweet pickle of a mess you've got yourself into. Clarkson smiled, but his face was still creased with pain. You've got an avulsion of the meniscus. Nasty little bugger, Dr. Malvern said, smiling, and including Clarkson's wife in the sweep of his gaze. I don't think it's operable. Can't you scope these things, repair them, Clarkson said? This is an avulsion. Not too common, actually. I can't recommend surgery at your age and with the size of this one. Some might operate. Of course, you're welcome to seek another opinion. I always recommend that even when surgery is indicated. Not necessary, doctor. Your opinion's good enough for me. Clarkson looked to his wife, who almost imperceptibly nodded. Samantha, the nurse, re-entered and gave medications. Dr. Malvern gave instructions about positioning and limiting mobility and instructed Samantha to arrange crutches and prescriptions for pain. Dr. Malvern shook Clarkson's hand and bowed to his wife before leaving. Darwin followed him out to start another patient. The next weekend, Darwin worked again on Saturday. He was with Samantha when she asked patient Clarkson about his week. Isn't it on the record? Clarkson asked. Darwin handed Samantha the chart. She scanned the notes for the last week. Is it still hurting? Samantha asked. I've called four times. It's been swelling. He pulled up his pant leg to the knee. Is this the way a meniscus gets better? Samantha got a sheet 
and asked Darwin to help Clarkson remove his pants and shirt and lie on the examining table while she stepped out. Clarkson's left leg was swollen to twice normal size, the skin color, especially around the ankle, a purplish blue. It hurts, Clarkson said. I haven't had a good night's sleep in a week. Did you see anyone? Darwin asked. Darwin checked the chart, which indicated four phone calls but no visits. Talked to Dr. Malvern twice, and his associate the other times. It's all part of the injury. I've been taking additional medicines for pain and using ice packs. Darwin made notes as required. Samantha returned and, with a flexible tape, measured and called out the circumferential leg measurements on the normal and injured leg for Darwin to record in the chart. The numbers documented the left leg was more than twice that of the right. The doctor will be with you in a moment, Samantha said. Malvern entered and greeted Clarkson. Malvern frowned and seemed agitated as he pressed Clarkson's left leg. The imprint of his finger indentations remained in the tissue near the shin. Malvern put his hand on Clarkson's shoulder. We need an ultrasound, my friend. Today, Clarkson asked. As soon as possible, Dr. Malvern left quickly to go to another room. What do they do? Clarkson asked Darwin. They'll run a probe over your leg and monitor images on a screen. Darwin stopped from telling him it would be no problem. From Malvern's demeanor, he knew everything was not all right. Darwin made notes of his conversation. The ultrasound technician interrupted Dr. Malvern in a consultation for hip replacement informed consent. It's a DVT, the technician said. The patient frowned. It's not you, Dr. Malvern said. It's another patient. Darwin wrote down deep vein thrombosis in Clarkson's chart notes. Dr. Malvern excused himself, made calls, and within 18 minutes, Clarkson was on his way to a hospital emergency room to be met by an internist to be admitted and monitored. They can throw pulmonary clots that can do them in, Malvern said. A few minutes later, when they were alone in the hall between exam rooms, Darwin asked Nurse Samantha, Was that a misdiagnosis? She raised an eyebrow. Was that a yes? He should have been anticoagulated days ago, she said. Darwin couldn't work at Dr. Malvern's office for more than two weeks. When he did return, Dr. Malvern wasn't in that day, and Darwin worked with an associate. Before Darwin left, he reviewed the transcript of his chart notes from his previous time at the office. Almost nothing was in Clarkson's chart. No indication that phone calls had been taken from Clarkson. The measurements of the discrepancy in the leg size were not there. From the chart, the DVT could be interpreted as a sudden event, not the slow progression over a week. Samantha told Darwin when he asked, Clarkson had thrown an embolus and was in acute respiratory distress for days in the hospital. Darwin showed Samantha the chart, showed what had not been included. Risk management, she said. Insurance demands it or no coverage. They worry about suits. The manager vets chart entries that might be a special risk for big settlements. Is that legal? Who knows? Definitely not right. But who could ever prosecute such behavior? Dr. Malvern could fire him. She frowned. 
Dr. Malvern sets up the protocol. He reviews many of the big-risk charts himself to be sure they're clean. But the record is incomplete. She shrugged. Darwin turned to leave. I never told you, Darwin, she said. Promise? He nodded. Chapter 32 Darwin was in the Mercedes with Laszlo. The limo they used to bring Luther to Club 69 had been rear-ended, and the right rear wheel was out of line. Eugene, in street clothes, was in the club with Luther. Darwin drove the Mercedes from the mansion to pick up Laszlo at the site of the accident. Now Laszlo drove. It was in a bad neighborhood for a luxury car. Laszlo stared ahead and frequently glanced in the mirrors for vandals and drunks. They were parked in a no-parking zone to be near the front door if Luther and Eugene needed to leave the club fast. Laszlo had Luther's hairbrush, his wallet, Luther carried only a short stack of cash, and his keys to prevent bulges with tight jeans. Tonight, Luther had on a black skin-tight T-shirt and a leather vest with two outer front pockets where he slipped in his cash bills folded over in one and his cell phone in the other. Over that, he had on a brown three-button tweed sports jacket with leather patches on the elbow. Darwin had his eyes closed, his head against the window. Laszlo's cell phone rang. Luther needed more cash, 500 bucks from his wallet. Eugene needed to stay inside. Bring the cash in. Laszlo handed cash to Darwin, wanting to stay with the car. The club was a hangar-size open space with a bar along the back wall. There was a dance floor on the right surrounded by tables. A live band pulsed the air with mostly rock and blues. A maitre d' in a tuxedo and a muscled bodyguard met Darwin as he walked in. The guard gripped Darwin's arm to stop him. Luther Pinelli, Darwin said. Hey, you're not 21. Darwin could see Luther with three girls at the sofa in the lounge area. Eugene was visible in the shadows a few feet away. The bar stools were filled with a bulk of men almost twice normal size, many wearing shirts with football team logos. The girls that squeezed in between them were all young and acting unattached. I just need to deliver this. Darwin held up the bills attached with a paper clip. The room was dark with bright swatches of intense light that highlighted a faint haze speckled with dust. A faint acrid smell reached Darwin. Many patrons were smoking. I'll take it, the maitre d' said, signaling for the bouncer. I'll do it, Darwin insisted. Nah, definitely not. You can watch me, the maitre d' said and took the cash, holding it up ear high and walking to Luther. The bouncer stayed with Darwin. When Luther took the cash, the bouncer shoved Darwin out the door. Is he about finished? Laszlo asked as Darwin got in the limo. I don't think so, Darwin said. They settled back to wait. Laszlo had moved the limo to a legitimate parking space, and they could see the door from 50 yards to watch for Luther and Eugene. Darwin glanced at the dashboard clock when Luther, with Eugene behind him, came out in a group of 11 or 12 patrons. It was 2.37. Laszlo flashed the Mercedes lights. Three girls came out clutching a large man who was staggering. He lurched into Luther. Luther said something, but Darwin couldn't hear in the silence of the Mercedes interior. 
The man yelled something back, swinging a fist in the air that didn't come close to Luther. Luther stepped up to him and threw a right uppercut to the jaw. The man's head snapped back. Two men started for Luther, a gun in the right hand of the smaller one. Eugene moved quickly to stand in front of Luther. The girls backed toward the closed club door. A shot rang out. Eugene went down on his knees. More men converged on Luther who had stepped over a downed man and was swinging at a drunk guy. Another shot rang out. Five more men came out of the club. Two attacked Luther, who turned to confront them. Luther leveled one with a blow to the head. A smaller man kicked Luther, aiming for the groin but hitting his knee. Another shot rang out. People began to disperse. Luther was visible again. Darwin got out of the car to open the back door and signal Luther. Laszlo cranked the motor. Luther rolled Eugene over. He was conscious but holding his belly. Blood oozed through his hand. The police had arrived. Darwin went to help Luther lift Eugene. I didn't shoot anyone, Luther said calmly as he wrapped his arm around Eugene's shoulder and sat him up. Darwin supported Eugene on the other side. They stood him up and got him to the Mercedes. Laszlo pulled Eugene in from the inside. Two uniformed cops grabbed Luther. Go over there, one said, pointing to the club door. This man needs to get to a hospital, Luther said. With skill, the cop cuffed Luther to a sturdy light pole, frisked him, and removed an automatic pistol from a side pocket. Go, Luther said to Darwin and Laszlo. The larger cop went towards the club. The other required names and addresses with telephone numbers from Darwin, Eugene, and Laszlo and copied down the plate number of the Mercedes before he'd let Darwin and Laszlo leave. Darwin stayed in the back of the limo to help Eugene, and Laszlo found the nearest hospital on the GPS. I'll make it, Eugene said. Where is it, Laszlo asked. In the belly. If it got anything vital, I'd be dead by now. Surgeons operated within 30 minutes after Eugene's arrival at the emergency room, perforated bowel. Darwin and Laszlo stayed with Eugene through the night. After he was sure everything was all right with Eugene, Laszlo went to pick up Luther at Central Lockup. But Luther hadn't been released. The man who had originally attacked Luther was dead. The cops suspected Luther's gun, which had been fired recently. Luther admitted he'd fired the gun, but only in the air to stop the rioting. He denied killing, but was still held in custody until the next afternoon. Two days later, ballistics showed Luther's gun was not the killer weapon. Luther was released, but would be charged with illegal possession of an unregistered firearm and carrying a concealed weapon. Luther pretended to be unconcerned about the charges of possession he faced, but Sweeney and Darwin, and almost everyone in the compound, could tell he was worried. A rapper got six to ten on a similar charge eight months before, and high-profile cases were always under scrutiny for successful prosecution. The word had quickly spread that there was little doubt in the minds of Luther's lawyers the case would go to trial. Part 3 Chapter 33 Darwin did all his own statistics in the lab and helped others with their projects, always checking results with the master statistician for the lab, a reticent small youth, likable for reasons no one could pinpoint, Henley David. Henley built software and app programs for many clients inside and outside the school. 
Darwin still played Scrabble with Granny on the days he spent at the Pinelli Mansion, usually an infrequent weekend, and he had the idea to create a new app that expanded the game for her. He devised a way to increase board size, increase the number of tiles, and be able to score by creating words that related in different ways to the words already played. Creating a synonym, creating an adverb related to a verb, an adjective to a noun, extra special rewards for palindromes, and reorganized scoring so that multiple words created in one play gave an almost exponential possibility of increasing the basic score. It provided larger score potential with every player's turn, and as the game progressed, made the possibility of comeback by a player behind the leaders more likely than with a regular game. Over a period of months, Darwin spent a few hours a week learning and helping Henley build the app, paying Henley hourly wages for his off-hours work. When it was published, Darwin surprised Granny, showing her on a notebook. She was interested at first, but then refused to learn anything involving electronics. She declared total disdain for anything that spoiled her original cherished Scrabble. So Darwin developed a board game version for her, with a manufacturer who would market and distribute the new product. Darwin played his new game with Granny, pointing out the economic potential of winning based on points, which piqued Granny's interest. She soon mastered play and scoring and was teaching her old and new friends the new game with every expectation of tripling her winnings. Darwin posted the app, which became popular, and he was pleased in the first seven months he had made close to a quarter of a million dollars in sales online. But the board game sales were slow and not lucrative, so he planned a second board game, similar but with different challenges and different skills, to be promoted primarily as a board game for the older generations with electronic phobias. Chapter 34 Helen was enrolled in college at Smith when Darwin was at Columbia and took a weekend off to spend in the city with her mother and father. Her father had arranged for Darwin to have lunch with the chair of the admissions committee at NYU for advice and guidance. Coral was in the village with a friend she had met on a trip to Florida, and Helen called Darwin at his city apartment close to the college. She reminded him of how much she had loved their time together in Paris. The Met is the ultimate, she continued. If you've never been, would you like to go Sunday afternoon? Mom and Dad are having lunch with friends. I'd like to, he said. She was pleased. Darwin insisted on paying his way. That was gentlemanly. After all, she had invited him. She was a member at the Met with the family and had free admission. And she was a docent at the privately funded Pierpont Gallery on Long Island now and planned to move up to do committee work and acquisitions. Being a docent was her contribution to the arts that was practical at her age, but she saw it as a baby step to more advanced involvement. Darwin had a map from the information kiosk at admissions. I'd like to see the antiquities, he said. Interest you? The way he glanced at the map quickly and efficiently was not a search to find something, but a refresher on how to maneuver the maze of halls and galleries. Let me show you the master must-sees first, she said. He did not look enthusiastic, but he smiled, and she assumed he had acquiesced to her suggestion. They moved on to modern art. Helen felt a touch on her right glute. It was not a bump or a brush, 
but definitely a hand pressed against her butt with enough firmness to indent the fabric of her cotton skirt. The hand stayed for a second and then was gone. She shifted closer to Darwin. She glanced around. The man was directly behind her. He was not looking at her. She stopped her explanation of a painting. You okay? Darwin asked. She leaned closer to Darwin. She whispered, I think a man just put his hand on my ass. What does he look like? Darwin asked. Don't look now. A mustache. Dark hair. Thick glasses with a black frame. Darwin looked. He's near the door. Let's move on. He's creepy. She looked around in the next gallery, but the man had not followed them. They went through two more galleries. In the third gallery, Helen took Darwin's hand to lead him to the back of the crowd standing around, intent on an Angra painting. She had only briefly thought about the man until she felt a hand again now rubbing her right glute. She glanced back. It's him, she said to Darwin. Darwin moved deliberately with exact but controlled speed. He grabbed the man's wrist. Helen backed away. In one swift movement, Darwin twisted the man's arm into a hammerlock and moved him decisively to an upholstered bench in the middle of the room. He forced the man to sit down, holding the man's arm, who winced with pain. Many in the crowd turned. Darwin was still behind the man. Helen heard Darwin as he spoke in a firm, controlled voice, leaning close to be close to the man's ear. The man's face was creased with false nonchalance. That woman in the blue dress and black heels... Darwin said, Never touch her again. Never. Stay seated here until we leave this gallery. Then stand and go directly to the museum exit. I do not want to see you ever again, here or anywhere, today or ever. Not if you understand. The man nodded reluctantly. Darwin tightened his grip. That hurts, the man whined. Never see you again, Darwin said, releasing his grip. Helen was impressed. It's time for us to move on, Darwin said. We can come back later. I've lost my enthusiasm, Helen said. Don't let him spoil your afternoon. That would make his day. He'd love to see us angry and distracted. They walked to antiquities. Helen took Darwin's arm in both her hands. Thanks, she said. She briefly put her head on his shoulder. Where did you learn that? Darwin smiled. From Luther's head of security. They came to a Greek sculpture. The entire scene with the molester stayed vivid in her mind. She felt Darwin close to her, and the tension eased out of her in ways she didn't remember experiencing before. He was, she realized, spectacular in his confidence for a young man. She found her gaze moving from the artwork to look at him longer and more often than she could control. An hour later, he suggested they find a restaurant on Madison for dinner. She was pleased more than she would ever have expected. She smiled. She was surprised at how, over the last couple of years, her opinion of Darwin had continued to shift for the better. Chapter 35 Late in the evening on a Thursday, Darwin worked on data analysis in the lab. I saw Dominique yesterday in the cafeteria, Jason Ono, his lab supervisor, said. She's down about her grades. Darwin thought it was a mistake. She's a straight-A student, he said, number one in our class. Not anymore, Jason pulled up a chair. It's fucking unfair, 
Dr. Stryker gave her a C for the semester. Patty wouldn't let that happen. What about her? I don't know. We'll ask her. She must be in today. They took the elevator to the fourth floor. Patty worked at a lab bench. Her white lab coat breast pockets stuffed with pencils and pens, and both side pockets were three-by-five cards. A blue surgical cap covered her hair, the elastic trim over her ears. She looked up through thick myopic glasses. We heard Dominique Mulleron got a C for the semester, Jason said. What happened? Patty stifled a sob. She must be the best medical student you've ever had in the lab, Darwin said. Patty found tissues in a drawer, took off her glasses, and wiped her eyes. She is the best ever. Why the grade? Darwin asked. I turned in an A to strike her. He changed it. Why? He said her performance was subpar. Her papers were unsatisfactory. She's got a lead paper in the New England Journal next month. That's not easy for a scientist, and especially a student, Jason said, and her other papers accepted in nature. I told Stryker that. He said to change the grade to C and temper my evaluations, resubmit. That's outrageous, Darwin said. I still don't understand why, Jason said. Patty looked around and then went in the hall. Come to my office. No one can hear. Patty took the desk chair in her office. Jason a folding chair, and Darwin sat on a rolling lamp stool. You know Stryker's reputation, Patty said. For being a son of a bitch, Jason said. About women, he's a lech. He put the moves on Dominique, Darwin asked. On almost every attractive woman that passes through the lab. What happened to Dominique? He made passes on her here many times. I heard some of them, not subtle. What did Dominique do? She was afraid to report, afraid of the consequences for her and for him. And you think he's punishing her? Darwin asked. I'm sure of it. She's told me. He showed up uninvited at her apartment twice, once drunk and out of control, wanting her to let him in, another time with a bottle of wine and flowers. She turned him away. And Dominic would be gentle, not tell him what he deserved, Jason said. Exactly. He probably thought she favored him just because she didn't hit him with a club or a hammer. Why didn't she report it? Jason asked. What if she did? He didn't rape her. I asked her if he touched her. He had a habit of putting his hand on her back sometimes, and he brushed up against her unnecessarily when they passed through doorways. It's not acceptable behavior for a chair of a department to a student, Jason said. What if she did file a complaint, Patty said. He'd say he had asked her for time to talk about her career, that he'd gone to her apartment to review corrections on one of her papers. No one would believe that, Darwin said. Except administration, who shit at the threat of scandal, Jason said. That's the pattern, Patty said. Often administration finds a reason to blame the woman, even if they know the guy is guilty. You were flirtatious, weren't you? You let him on. He's told us about you. We can't let them do this, Darwin said. This will keep her from summa cum laude at graduation. She deserves it. I've tried. I've talked to Stryker twice. He told me it was none of my doings, to stay out of it, that troublemaking was not well tolerated in his department, Patty said. He threatened to get rid of you? Jason asked. What did it sound like to you? The bastard, 
Jason said. We've got to stop this, Darwin said. The grades have been submitted, Patty said. That's no reason not to get the proper grade recorded. Good luck, Patty said. We'll talk to Stryker, Darwin said to Jason. Agree, Jason said. Darwin called Chairman Stryker's office. The chairman is not available today, the secretary said. Well, tomorrow morning then, Darwin said. The secretary agreed to a time when Darwin could come to a science building after he finished surgery and rounds. That good for you, Jason? Darwin asked. Jason nodded. The next day, Darwin left rounds early. After he presented two patients, he didn't miss the frown from his mentor. Jason had not come to work. Darwin called him. Fielding low, Jason said. This is for Dominique. I might be contagious. Get over here, Jason. She needs your support. You know I would if I could. Darwin was not convinced. Jason didn't sound sick. He was afraid for his career. Darwin broke the connection. Stryker looked up slowly from behind his massive antique mahogany partner's desk, unusual and expensive for a scientist. Well? I'm Darwin Hastings. I know who you are. Stryker made no sign to allow Darwin to sit, and Darwin thought it was best to remain standing, to look down directly at him. I've come to see about correcting the grade of Dominique Milleron. She was accidentally given a grade she did not deserve, and it will affect her honors at graduation. And why do you think you have any say in this? These are departmental matters. We are classmates and friends. I and everyone in your labs, and in the division, knows the quality of her work and her integrity. She deserves nothing less than an A. Get out, Stryker said. I deserve an explanation. You deserve an injection of respect. It is not unreasonable. Stryker walked to open his office door. Darwin didn't move. You have nothing to lose by being civil, he said. Ha! Stryker stepped into the outer office. Call security, he said to a secretary. It was futile to resist. Darwin strode past Stryker. Dominic was working at a satellite hospital for the day. A tech answered her cell phone. Too busy to talk, Dominique told the tech to tell Darwin she would call him later when she had finished clinic. Darwin called the office of the dean. Urgent, he said. The secretary was back in a few seconds. He can see you at 2.15 for ten minutes. The dean greeted Darwin briefly, and he said he was sorry to have such a short time. Darwin thanked him. What's up, the dean said. Darwin explained the situation. Dominic doesn't know I've come to you. Jason Ono is also concerned, but he couldn't make it today. We just can't let a good student like Dominic get victimized unfairly, he said. I'll look into it, the dean said. These are tough situations that can mushroom out of control. Thanks for bringing it to my attention. Darwin understood. He checked his phone. He'd missed Dominic's call. Darwin asked Dominique to meet him in the hall after rounds. They were standing in the hall, many feet from the auditorium entrance. I needed to tell you, he said to Dominique, what Stryker did to you is outrageous. It's fate, she said. I'm working at putting it behind me. I talked to the dean. Oh, no, not about Stryker. That you were given a low grade when Patty turned in a high grade? If there's trouble, Patty could be hurt, Dominique said. 
She's innocent. I know about the harassment. Dominique hesitated. It's how you define it, she said. That's where any sort of justice has always been drowned, no matter how intense the exposure. It always is who said what. There's never any proof. I just want to get you the grade you deserve. I've played tennis at the club with the dean on and off over the past year. He's an honest man. It can't be solved. I've thought about it. To change harassment means a court case. The conflict would be intense. Untrue and unfair things said by both sides. I'd be branded as an unreasonable, flirtatious woman student causing trouble, acting in revenge for a bad grade. Many judgments would be formed by many who really never should be confronted to make a judgment about me. In the long run, I'd be hurt. If we can just get the grade changed quietly without any confrontation, I don't know that that's possible. Let me find out, Darwin said, worried by the concern on Dominique's face. Two days later, the dean called for Darwin. There's no way I can override the decision of a tenured full professor to change a grade, the dean said. There would be outrage and reaction that would have nothing related to the reasons for the complaint. I've checked with the academics committee. The graduation awards are based strictly on grade point average. They would not waive their requirements no matter how just the request. In fact, there are a few precedents, and all of those have been turned down without review. The only recourse for Dominique is to take action. Although the hospital would be most helpful, it happened on school property. She needs to go legal, get them to formulate a strategy. That's what she doesn't want to do, of course, Darwin said. She's afraid of the consequences when a student goes against an academic chair with world fame and political power. It's the mouse and the tiger. I hate to say it, as much as I'd like justice for Dominique... I think she's right. But there has to be some way to obtain justice. There's a chance that some justice might be applied, but it's not with good odds, and it would probably depend on lots of others coming forward. And they'd be scared, Darwin said. That's the point for Dominique. She might get a modicum of revenge, but there would always be doubts and opinions about who was right, and her career would be affected, maybe severely, advancement blunted, Turndowns for best position she would normally be recruited for. She'd be labeled as the woman who surfaced a harassment scandal. And a lot of people have a wide range of opinions about whether that's right or not. May I tell what you've told me, Darwin asked. I'd ask you not to give my arguments. It's more than what's appropriate for a dean. I want Dominique to do well. But tell her there's no way I could change a grade or graduation honors criteria and that if she feels she wants to pursue harassment, that her best path is through the school misconduct system and to start with legal. They have two lawyers who specialize. It's so unfair, Darwin said. I don't feel good about it, the dean said. Believe me. Chapter 36 When Darwin received a note from Miss Melanie Pearlstein, she was back in New York teaching at a private school in Manhattan. She knew he was in school at Columbia. She had a place in the village. She had often thought of him and wondered if he would like to attend a reading with her mother and her and catch a bite at a deli afterward. It would be great to see him again. She gave him her cell and address. 
Well, Darwin had thought of her. In alone times, mostly. The intensity and pleasure of their sex together. So he said yes. He'd meet them at the reading and look forward to eating out. He would be at the reading at seven o'clock. He was surprised that he had more than a touch of eagerness at seeing Pearlstein again. The reading ran almost two hours, poetry and prose. Pearlstein's mother's head nodded during an epic poem, and with a snort that turned heads, she woke up for a second unaware of where she was. They walked to the deli, Pearlstein keeping a brisk pace, and urging Darwin to keep up while her mother fell behind, having almost to trot at times to even stay close. Darwin kept tugging at Pearlstein to slow down, making her laugh, her quick moving eyes sharp in detail, and with a warmth behind her glasses he did not remember from before. Darwin sat across from the two women at a table for four. They ordered. Pearlstein's hairstyle was longer. Although curly, it had more body and framed her face. Her smile was relaxed, ubiquitous, and infectious. She was wearing a fashionable dress in a demure shade of dark green, and it gave her an aura of professionalism and intellect. "'You fell asleep, mother,' she teased. "'That was the most boring poem.' "'I agree,' Darwin said. "'He was a former student. I felt sorry for him.' "'He was so proud.' "'How would you teach him to become a better writer?' Darwin asked. Brillstein thought for a moment.' It's not in the English. That doesn't make sense, her mother said. It has to be in the English. That's not what I meant. Make yourself clear, then. It's in him finding what he wants to say and being smart enough to have something significant for the serious reader. Then being kind and generous enough, as a person, to learn the skills that will engage readers so they will enjoy it. Isn't it in the presentation? Her mother challenged. He was monotonous and oblivious to what he sounded like. There is a difference between hearing and listening for an audience, Pearlstein said. People heard his sound. They couldn't avoid it, and he was unable to engage them so they could listen. But he will never make that poem an enjoyable experience unless he rewrites it with a purpose and uses quality thinking in the revision. Even if he improves his presentation, he's not smart enough to do that. And he makes innocent people like us suffer, her mother said. There weren't that many people there, Darwin said. The quality of the writing isn't what it used to be, Pearlstein said. And how is school for you? Darwin told her he liked it. He was pre-med, which she said she expected. He spent many weekends with Granny and Mrs. Thomas at the mansion, and Sweeney was there when she was not traveling. Luther Pinelli married that Sweeney person, Pearlstein's mother said. Are you related? She asked Darwin. Cousins? Her last single was a flop, mother said. Really, Pearlstein said, surprised. Do you like her music? Darwin said to mother, knowing without doubt Sweeney's last release was a huge hit. I can't avoid her. On radio, on TV, mother said. Their food came. Pearlstein said she was making good money and taking trips during summer breaks. "'She's got a boyfriend,' mother said of Pearlstein to Darwin. "'I do not,' Pearlstein said. "'He's Jewish,' her mother said. "'Shh!' mother concentrated on her soup. 
Your teaching was great, Darwin said. I play second in the state in science and math, first in English. I always wanted to thank you. I was too tough on you. You knew almost everything anyway. You were what I needed, Darwin said. Pearlstein's look lingered, and Darwin felt a surge of his old feeling for her. When they had finished, Darwin walked them to the subway station, then took a bus uptown back to school. Weeks later, Pearlstein called him to go to a movie and have dinner at her place. He arrived at 5.30. She'd made spaghetti with a meat sauce and had green beans as a side. She served him vanilla ice cream with a butterscotch sauce she had made while he drank an after-dinner espresso. The movie was at an art theater near her place, the 1939 version of Wuthering Heights. Remember? She asked when she told him. It wasn't my favorite, Darwin said. It should be, she smiled. You couldn't help but be swayed by my enthusiasm. He laughed. He walked her back to her place after the show and didn't hesitate when she invited him in. He sat on the sofa as she heated water for tea. She came out and sat so close that she touched him and put her hand on his leg. To be comfortable, he moved his arm behind her shoulders on top of the sofa pillow. I've never forgotten our time together, she said. I fell in love, you know. It wasn't just sex. I loved you. Darwin sipped his drink. Have you ever thought about me? she asked. He responded after a thoughtful pause. Yes, he admitted. Do you remember me, or was it just the sex? Both, he said. Right after I left, I wanted to see you so badly. I came back from Vermont twice and stayed a few hours outside the estate hoping to see you, but I never did. It was so stupid. She had put her head on his shoulder, and she had brought her feet up under her, clasping her hands around her knee. She was relaxed. He could feel the heat from her. His heart was beating noticeably. Can you spend the night? she asked softly. He wanted to, but something made him hesitate. He searched for an answer. I've got a nine o'clock organic chemistry, he said. She waited, stretched to kiss him lightly, then turned so she was face up. Her arms went around his neck as her lips found his. She was trembling. He felt her heart pounding. The taste of her was fresh and toxic, not changed at all over the more than three years. He lost himself in her intensity, as if no time had come between them. Chapter 37 Darwin dated Pearlstein as often as he could get off. She pleaded for more time together, and on a weekend, he joined her for a protest march. It was impromptu, organized on the Internet to express outrage at illegal excesses of yet another investment firm exposed a week before. Pearlstein had dressed in shorts and a sweatshirt and had running shoes on with no socks. The group's placards were mixed in their message. There was no march. Protesters milled around without direction. What's the theme? Darwin asked over the blare of a protest leader yelling into a handheld speaker. The rich get richer. Isn't that pretty vague? The excesses of a capitalistic society? You're a socialist? Not really, 
anti-big business. A police presence began to build up. This doesn't look legal, Darwin said, refusing a placard on a stick someone wanted to give him. Perlstein walked around among the crowd for a few minutes and he followed. More police arrived, but they did not threaten. Could this get ugly, he asked. I've been arrested twice. For capitalism? Once for pollution. Once for war. Never charged. One night in jail. She stopped wandering around. The noise abated. Protesters seemed deflated in their enthusiasm to create change. I can't see you're going to make a difference, Darwin said to Pearlstein. She seemed disappointed in the size of the languid, sparse crowd. She thought about it for a minute. I guess you're right. Let me take you to breakfast, he said. They found a small restaurant in the village. They sat at a small circular table for two, elbow to elbow with couples on both sides of them. The service was quick, and they began to eat. Darwin said he didn't like to talk with people so close to him, and he said little until the couple closest to them left. This is crazy, he said. Do you really like to do this? Eat breakfast? She was mocking him. Protest. You're privileged. I can see why it wouldn't appeal to you. Being privileged has nothing to do with it. It's dangerous, mostly ineffective, and a waste of time. It's how societies crumble. It's how politicians are dethroned. It's how the voice of the masses is heard. He tried to see her point. It's worrisome, she said. Your apathy for chains, your disdain for the right... It's the protesting that bothers me. Threatening people who are not involved in the perceived wrong. Disrupting innocent people's lives. Occasionally provoking violence. Listen to you. Think of the industrial complex. Think of the warmongers. Think of the out-of-control authoritative goons that pretend to protect us. It's society gone amuck in violence. I don't get it. You're angry about abstractions and things that will not be changed by groups randomly formed and wandering the streets, Darwin said, admiring her incense, but puzzled by the scope of her reasons for reform. She was angry, and she didn't know exactly why. You're wrong, her face flushed. I'm not the enemy, he said. Don't be so obstinate. She didn't speak after that, and he took her home by taxi and spent the rest of the day catching up at the hospital. Chapter 38 Sweeney called on a weekday just after dark. Darwin was at the apartment. She needed to see him. Her voice quivered. I could get called in, he said. Please, Darwin. He told her to come as soon as she could. She came through the door empty-handed, not even her usual shoulder bag. She had on jeans and a red T-shirt under a straw-colored jacket. She was holding a paper towel against her temple. Darwin had her sit on a straight-back chair and took away the towel. He separated her blood-matted hair. She had a three-inch abrasion that had only partially clotted. He looked at her eye, solid red in spots from hemorrhage. The lids were beginning to discolor, but her vision was okay and the pupil reacted normally. He didn't speak until he brought first aid material and stopped the bleeding and took preventive measures for infection. Coffee? he asked. She shrugged. Lie on the sofa, he said. 
He put on the coffee to brew, found some pain pills, and brought her a glass of water. She swallowed the pills. With the coffee ready, he brought her a cup fixed the way he knew she liked it and pulled up a chair to face her as she still lay facing up on the couch. Has he done this before? he asked. She didn't answer at first. It's uh, part of the drug usage, the, the rage. It comes on so sudden. Darwin waited for a while. I, I don't know how to protect myself, she said. I would guess it's steroids, he said. You've got to report it. I'm, I'm not an abused woman, Darwin. You can't stay with him after this, ever, she thought for a moment. It's not the real him. I don't know what to do. Well, you can stay here tonight. You can have my bed. I'll sleep on the sofa. She protested, but he insisted. He helped her into the bedroom. He brought her water, covered her, turned out the light. Her eyes were closed, but he doubted she would sleep. He read for a few hours and then fell asleep on the sofa. He checked her twice during the night to be sure she didn't lose consciousness. In the morning, she seemed refreshed. She wanted to return to Luther. Are you sure, he said. Stay here with Granny. No, she said. I've got to work this out. Don't let it happen again, Darwin said, before he took her home on his way to school. Chapter 39 Darwin studied for a statistics exam, seated on the sofa in his apartment, a floor lamp with a yellow shade by his side. There was a knock on the door, and before he put his book down, the scratch of a key in the lock let him know it was Pearlstein. The door opened. She stepped in and slammed the door without looking back. She stood with her feet planted, rigid, still holding the key out and at waist level, as if in suspended animation. Her face was red, her jaw set, her mouth in a determined line. "'What are you doing?' he asked, standing, but without moving toward her. Pearlstein breathed deeply three times. She seemed to calm a little. Her eyes were still fixed on Darwin's face. She tried to speak, but couldn't find the words, and the anger returned. Anger now distorted the delicacy of her beauty, made it coarse and unattractive. She threw the key to the floor. Darwin didn't move. She seemed ready to explode. Then, without any change in her intensity, tears trickled down her face. It's over she finally said. Sit down, he said. I'll get you a glass of wine. I won't sit down. Tell me why you're angry. I'm not angry. What are you thinking, then? You rarely see me anymore. I can accept that. You're busy with your studies, but if you're going to dump me, you should be man enough to tell me. Just say you don't love me, that we'll never have a future together that you've never considered anything permanent between us. My God, we've been screwing for how long and never one word about engagement. I'm not going to do it anymore, you filthy creep. Never. Keep your fucking key. He didn't move to her, although he knew that was what she needed, that he could transform her anger into passion with the slightest affectionate gesture. But he shifted his stance so that he faced her directly without moving. Say something she hissed. Maybe if you'd tell me what this is all about. 
I don't want to ever see you again. Fini. Kaput. Bye-bye. The tears had stopped. He couldn't argue. His caring for her had seemed less and less like love recently. She had turned to increasing demands that he do this and that. Her lovemaking had become mechanical, as if she were trying to conquer an exercise machine for flat abs. And she'd lost her humor and complained with paranoia about being Jewish, being unappreciated at school, discriminated against when she submitted her writing to magazines and journals and was turned out for publication without comment. For many months now, the wonder of their being together was gone for him. He was unable to feel desire for her, and recently he could not bring himself to try to regain his feelings for her that had been so strong for so long. At least tell me what happened, he said. She backed away, leaned on the door for support as if she might collapse. Oh, wouldn't you like to deny it? Deny it again and again? Tell me it isn't true? What? He shook his head with exasperation. She stayed here last night. Sweeney? I was outside when she came in. I waited all night. She didn't come out. He moved past her to the door. Just leave, Melanie, really. He could not reason the truth with her. You don't deny it? You want me to go, as if I don't deserve some explanation as to why you're screwing your cousin's wife? We weren't screwing. She's family, Melanie. Pearlstein sat down on the floor with her legs crossed, her face in her hands. Oh, no. I know you're not innocent. I've always suspected you. I've got exams tomorrow. I need to do well, he said. He would do well. He just couldn't deal with Pearlstein's needs anymore. He was not the man who could fill her need to possess what she wanted. She couldn't just love and care without total subservience to her needs. She wanted to control. Her eyes were more scared than angry. You don't care anymore. God, I'm so stupid. He opened the door. His love for her would never come back. Her unfounded jealousy of Sweeney had months ago made him dread talking to her about Sweeney. For her own self-worth... Pearlstein had to believe Sweeney was the reason for his withdrawal from her, and nothing about her was to blame. And now, he could not comfort her for fear that she would still think he wanted her in some way. He didn't. She wasn't what she had been when he first knew her. And he did not like what she had become. Please go, he said. She slowly stood. This is it, then? This is goodbye? He opened the door without speaking staring at her with no trace of emotion. I hate you, she hissed as she passed. I hope you rot in hell. He closed the door quickly and deliberately. He was unable to get back to his studies for more than two hours. Still, the quick passing of Pearlstein from the front of his thoughts made him know he could never love her again. And he didn't feel good about how permanent it was, and maybe unfair in ways he wished had never occurred. Chapter 40 As advised by Dr. Malvern to assure strong application to medical school, Darwin continued in the labs of Wendell Holman, where he was still mentored and supervised by Jason Ono. Lab meetings were the first Tuesday morning of every month in a small auditorium. The group Darwin worked with presented experimental data for the mandatory periodic reviews of all scientists and staff. It was basic science that interrelated with most other labs in Holman's group, 
that could lead to discoveries to prevent nephrotoxicity in diabetes and hypertension. Ono and Darwin's presentations were well received. The business session of the meeting was led this week by Dr. Holman himself. Grant awards have been numerous the last six months, budgets were due, and those submitting grants should pay attention to deadlines. Processing through the university might have unexpected delays. Dominique Milleron stood in the audience to address the podium. I would like to know how grant proposals and funding are prioritized, she asked. From his position behind the podium on stage right, Dr. Holman put his head back slightly and stared at Dominique through bifocals for a few seconds. It was an unusual question, almost impertinent in its content. I'm not sure I understand your question, Holman said. What is she doing, Jason, asked Darwin, leaning toward him so no one could hear. Dominique Mulleron, student in Patty's lab. She's a classmate, Darwin said. She had a reputation of hard work in the lab and brilliance in school. I'm primarily wondering about NIH funding, Dominique continued, and nonprofit foundations, too. I'm wondering how research value for human health and longevity is determined and if priorities are applied when submitting grants. The lab manager stood. Dr. Holman seemed at a loss for words. Good question, the lab manager said. If I understand you correctly, I think you mean to ask, what do we do as a unit to prioritize our research for outcomes that will maximally benefit human health care? Exactly, Dominic said. We are basic scientists, Dr. Holman said. Rarely do we do clinical studies, and those are usually done in collaboration. The money spent for research, Dominique said, especially from the government foundations, comes from citizens. I wonder if some accountability isn't indicated as to the value of research for human health and longevity. Dr. Holman replied, Everything we do here has scientific value, I assure you. It may not be immediately apparent at the time, but the value always emerges. Even negative results are valuable, and the prioritization you imply we should do here is partially done at the NIH level, at individual institutes. Funding is tight, Dominic said. So many projects are not funded. That makes the choices of what research to fund and support that identifies the greatest number of people with easy access to treatment through low cost and as well as for the greatest health benefit, doubly important. Dr. Holman laughed. I could see you've been turned down. Darwin resented Holman's condescension. He rose. That does not dismiss the issue, he said. This laboratory spends millions yearly. It's reasonable to wonder about priorities, because that makes what we do on the basic level even more significant, and it justifies the money provided for us. You're speaking like medical doctors, and you're not. Yet, Dr. Holman said curtly. Jason Ono rose to join Dominique and Darwin. Let a Ph.D. speak, he said. There's another face to this need to assess benefits of what we are doing. Drug company support comes only when there is a proven profit potential with minimal concern about the health benefit at low cost to the broadest number of people. When we accept drug money for operating cost, we make compromises as scientists. It's an ethical issue. We are not clinicians, 
Holman said, and I resent the charge we compromise when we accept industrial support. We are scientists working in health-related science, Jason Ono responded. The business manager spoke while still seated on the stage. It's an issue we can address in executive committee, he said. Uh, Yes, Dr. Holman said. An excellent suggestion. I would think open session would be more effective, Jason said. Holman moved on without further comment. Jason Ono whispered to Darwin as the meeting closed, That young lady has a lot of guts. I don't know her well, but I admire her passion, Darwin said. Two days later, Darwin took an open seat in the auditorium that was almost filled for a lecture on the latest enzymatic research in cardiovascular disease. To his right sat Dominique Mulleron, the student who spoke in the lab meeting. You were very impressive in lab meeting, Darwin said to her. I hope I was effective. You getting discouraged with lab work? Oh, no, no. We're doing good work, and it's beginning to be recognized. It's the way profit seems to drive all decisions that bothers me. That's not why I want to be a doctor. And the science gets cheated, Darwin said. Good science is underfunded. Investigations directed to ridiculous projects to secure a patent that would be profitable, unrelated to its value to science and medicine. I heard some people tried to patent walking up a flight of stairs, Darwin smiled. How are you joking? He laughed. Well, things like that. Anything to try to make a dollar. And you're happy with the time you're putting in the lab, Dominique said. It's been great, Dominique. Ono is a gifted teacher and a good guy. I'll have at least three first-author publications by the time I apply to medical school. Are you still working in the orthopedist office? Dr. Malvern? Yes, he's been good to me. But I can't go as often now with school. Do you want to be an orthopedist? Oh, God, no. Because of Malvern? Oh, no, he's fine. But it's like carpentry. You mean repair without any involvement in human healing, Dominic said. She smiled with empathy. Chapter 41 Darwin tried to avoid an invitation from Dr. Malvern to meet on a Sunday at the house in the Hamptons, but Dr. Malvern was insistent. Dr. Malvern had Mrs. Malvern prepare a lunch while he talked with Darwin. Darwin followed him to his office the first time he had ever had a discussion in Dr. Malvern's private office, a sanctuary for Dr. Malvern that few entered for very long, even family. Dr. Malvern positioned Darwin in a wing chair and then sat himself in a leather upholstered chair behind his mahogany desk. Darwin remained silent, waiting for Dr. Malvern to begin. Uh, how is school? Uh, Dr. Malvern asked. Darwin explained that everything was fine. I hear your lab work is doing well. Darwin told him of Jason Ono's work and how Jason had mentored him scientifically. Well, that's good, Dr. Malvern said. Too few doctors are getting a solid foundation in science at your level. I think it's hurt the quality of care. Darwin agreed that he felt the solid science would help him in medical school and training. Dr. Malvern leaned back in his swivel chair. Uh, what do you think of the quality of care at the office? he asked. Darwin shrugged mentally. Fine. 
but you were not pleased with Mr. Clarkson's care. I'm not sure what you mean, Darwin said, aware he sounded defensive, and surprised that Samantha would betray a confidence. It must have been her. You were asking about the chart, Dr. Malvern said. I don't pretend to judge care of patients. I'm not that far along in training, Darwin said. But you thought the chart was deficient. I noticed that what I scribed wasn't included, and the phone call records were removed. Dr. Balvin shook his head from side to side. Uh, that's where the problem arises. We're about to get a lawsuit from Clarkson. Big bucks. The insurance coverage may not cover what Clarkson wants as compensation. There's a cap. I'll be responsible for some of it. Darwin said he was sorry. Sorry may not be good enough, Darwin. Did you talk to Clarkson? Share your feelings about the chart? What you thought should be in the chart? No, Darwin said. His lawyers, did you talk to them? I talked to no one. But your feelings were that a mistake had been made. A mistake has been made. That was the judgment of others, not mine alone, and I shared it with no one. Dr. Malvern sighed. Oh, I believe you, Darwin, but I'm not sure about the future. What if you were asked? About what? What you believe? I would not speak of judgments I'm not qualified to make. What about the chart? If specifically asked, I'd tell the factual truth. Which is... If someone asked, was what I scribed in the chart, I'd say it wasn't. Nothing more? That the phone call notes I'd seen were no longer there if I were asked? There is nothing more. Well, you'll never be asked. My lawyers are good, and the prosecution will never know you were on the case. He paused, staring intently at Darwin. And you'll never volunteer the information? Why would I? You're a do-gooder, Darwin, ready to rise and strike out for justice. Darwin didn't like the description, and now that Dr. Malvin had brought it up, he did feel the patient deserved to know what he knew. Hopefully the case would be settled out of court, and he wouldn't have to make that decision. Dr. Malvin was still staring at him. Just don't do anything imprudent, he said. Darwin didn't answer. Mrs. Malvin knocked on the door without opening it. Lunch is ready. Soup's hot. Her fading footsteps filtered through the wooden door. Hey, how's it with Helen? Dr. Malvin said. She's sweet on you, you know. Darwin laughed a little self-consciously. Do you like her? Dr. Malvin asked. Of course, Darwin said. Well, don't break my little darling's heart, he said. Never intended. She's had too much of that, Darwin, and she really loves you. She's the best, Darwin said. Dr. Malvern stood, and together they went to have lunch in the sunroom. Mrs. Malvern stayed in the kitchen. Darwin and Dr. Malvern talked sports. This ends Episode 2 of Guardian of Deceit, a novel by William H. Coles. You'll find links to all episodes of Guardian of Deceit and the iTunes and Google Play feeds at storyandfictionpodcast.com. I'm Bill Coles, your host, 
And this podcast is produced by StoryInLiteraryFiction.com. Thanks for listening, and goodbye.